Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Everyone, I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington Lee's Law School. Today's episode features New York Times best-selling author Sochiel Gonzalez, who will speak with us about her book *Olga Dies Dreaming*, her other writing, and the importance of diverse voices. I'll start by having her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Sochiel Gonzalez, and I am the author, as you said, of *Olga Dies Dreaming*, as well as a contributor to The Atlantic, amongst other magazines. And I um, have an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was a post-40 get for me, <laughs> and a very recent um, ac- like a very recent addition to my resume. So I have a question about the Iowa, um, the Iowa degree, because so many, I used to be on the board of a nonprofit that was a creative writing nonprofit called Writers in the Schools. And we would send so many of our like superstars to that Iowa program, but like at 17. So what, (laughs) what led you to do it post 40? Um, I sort of decided at 40, I was going to take up writing. And I think coming from kind of a lower income background, I'd say that school has been a friend to me, like um, institutions have given me space to sort of understand systems and figure out how things work. And so I decided I did a writer's program, like a summer writer's program that was like a mixed age kind of, you know, people take two weeks off and go up up to Vermont. And it was very helpful. And so I was like, I'm going to apply for my MFA and I'm only going to go a place where I can get funded. And so Iowa is fully funded. They give you a grant to live on in addition to it being free tuition. And It just seemed like a great time to get off the hamster wheel of adulting and figure out how to emerge. And because it is so prestigious, I was nervous about moving to Iowa because I'm a lifelong Brooklynite. And one of my friends reminded me that it would probably take me twice as much time to get there through any other route. And I think she was right because I sold the book my second semester of the program. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So I made a lot of use of my time, um, very, very good use of my time there. So did you finish the entire book in the first semester or did it was it? No, I walked in with like 200 pages that I wrote in the mornings and on weekends while I had my day job. And then, um, and so I walked in with like half of it, but then without any responsibilities or needing to work or even teach my first semester, I just really dove, I dove in and I was so homesick. It was a lot of, you know, my novel takes place in Brooklyn. And so it was kind of fun to spend time with my imaginary friends since I wasn't near home. (laughs) You know, it's fascinating. I had the same experience when I first started teaching. I was so super productive because I was, I was used to writing while practicing law. And it's like, it felt almost like vacation to be able to just like write and even teach one class. Right. I know. Well, I think that's right. And when you live so intensely, like in that state of career adulthood, like, and even, even that intensely where you're like living through adulthood with your obligations to family and friends, plus your professional obligations and all, like just taking one thing away suddenly makes you feel like you have all of this time. It's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. And I took my friend's family and my job away. So it was a lot of things. <laughs> well, I tell students all the time, sometimes you just need to relocate. If I'm yeah. stuck, I just go right somewhere else. Like, yeah. and I can maybe crank out 5,000 words in a day if I just leave people. And leave. That's my- right. And, and it does 
it requires removal, but removal requires discipline, right? Like, yes. and I think that's the hardest part, like removing oneself from the day to day requires a certain amount of discipline and commitment. And I think that's sometimes the hardest thing to do. Absolutely. So I would like to discuss the importance of diverse voices. Um, and what I find interesting about all aspects of your writing, because I first discovered you in the Atlantic um, and I discovered your article about quiet. And I'm curious what motivated you to write about how we culturally respond to noise. Yeah, so I think I have been, well, as I mentioned, I've been living in Brooklyn my whole life. And as most people know, because it's become like a brand name now, a synonymous with, I don't know, artisanal cheeses and like, frankly, like white people. And like, and it was so not that like, and, and luxury high rises and all these and, and cool hotels. Like, and when I was growing up here in the eighties and the nineties, it was very ethnic. Like even our black population was very Caribbean. Like it was like very like immigrant ethnic it was very, um, it was very working class, like extremely working class. Like we had two neighborhoods and I remember a teacher of mine saying that in you reside in Brooklyn Heights and Park Slope and everywhere else in Brooklyn, you just live like, you know, like, oh like, and so like, we had two kind of fancy neighborhoods and every place else was just very like regular or industrial or underdeveloped. And, and what I've noticed happen is that it isn't just that things have gotten quote unquote nicer aesthetically. It's that with them has come a cultural shift in how your um what is considered like good behavior. Mm-hmm. Um and suddenly it's like like where I would go, let's say, to the Fulton Mall at four o'clock in the afternoon, which is a retail strip that's always been a retail strip in Brooklyn. I would expect if I don't want to be around like kids screaming and yelling at each other, high school kids screaming and yelling at each other and coming up with like their after school plans and like playing music on the radios. I should not go to the Fulton Mall at four o'clock. Like, like that is what happens there. I should go at another time. Like, and instead it's like, no, now we need to police this behavior. I don't like that. That's unpleasant to me. And so I'm going to police this behavior. And so what's happened is there's been a sort of establishment of an increasing level of desire for quiet, um, which I think is just a different cultural aesthetic. And I I get, you know, when I published the, the piece, I got a lot of people like saying, well, I was poor and I like quiet or I'm like a black woman and I love quiet. And it's like, I don't think that it means that you can't love quiet, but you also, I think in general, I, my point was more that I don't think the sounds of other people living life is a bad noise. Mm-hmm. And culturally, I was sort of attuned to the fact that like, if you're going to live in an urban setting, you're going to be around people. And that's just the sound of them living their life. And one day you'll be making noise because you'll be living your life. And right. how do we coexist and be respectful to one another? And um, yeah, and I, I guess I just felt like I it was important to write about because I've been sort of touching on this a little bit at a time, you know, in, in my I have a weekly newsletter with them, but I felt it was important to write about because we're getting to a place where just simply um, population wise, our demographics have shifted so much in America and we cannot continue to pretend that the what has been so long the dominant culture is the only culture. And we need to start making space for the fact that we need to coexist culturally. And I think, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've been on a lot of boards. I think we were just talking about board work and stuff like that, like pr- before we got on uh, on the air. And um, you always, there's a lot of talk about like, especially in corporate America and higher ed about 
diversity and equity and inclusion. And I always think about it, okay, but is there belonging? Like, is there space for you to be yourself? And so I really felt like part part of the point of the piece was to provoke the idea of like, why doesn't, I think this is actually just a line of the piece. Why does your comfort supersede my joy? Mm -hmm. And like how many times are people, particularly people of color, lower income people, told to like behave a particular way because a more power holding group wants some a different status quo. And so I think it was really just to say like that to me, a house full of people with a lot of stuff happening sounds like, oh, how great my family and friends are near my near me. Mm-hmm. That means like a good lots of good stuff is happening. So that's not a bad thing. Like I and I I you know and somebody I, the reactions were really amazing because I'm so good at working with so much stuff happening because I grew up in a railroad apartment with like two grandparents who are hard of hearing. Their siblings lived in all of the, like our family lived in all of the three floors of our building. And I just could, I could get work done with anything happening. Do you know, like, cause you had to, you had no choice. Right. Like you just had no choice. And someone wrote to me that it was like a, a preference for, you know, a preference for knowing is shows is shown to be a diminishment of intelligence. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people got really um, personal, but it was really interesting because it was kind of like getting into like eugenics. Like my 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 ability to work with a lot of noise around me somehow is an indicator of my la- lesser intelligence. Like it was sort of like a fascinating um, conclusion that people drew and pointed out. And um, I it was a good, le- I, the feedback on that piece was tremendous and it was a great lesson it actually reaffirmed the point of wanting to do it, which is that we, I think right now we're in a place where communiques get put out into the world. And it's like that old meme with the blue dress and the yellow dress. Like, and some people saw a yellow dress and some people saw a blue dress. And it's like just the same thing doesn't mean the same thing to every reader. But that's the importance of why those other alternative takes are need to be part of the mainstream because we are part of the mainstream. Exactly. You know, that what was most compelling to me and, you know, you went to Brown, I went to Duke and it made me think about the policing of the dorms. So, yeah, you know, I grew up just like you did. I have 21st cousins. My four, my grandparents live within three blocks of each other. Maybe they could scream at me from three blocks away. Like that's how much noise, yes. you know, I'm used to, I'm used to like hubbub. If I needed to read alone, I'd go sit, needed quiet, I'd go sit in a different room, but it was never, it was never totally quiet. Like I can sleep through yeah. anything, I can work through anything. Um, yeah. And it's almost unsettling and unnerving to me um, for it to be too Very, just deeply, yes, deeply unsettling. And, and that's sort of how, how I start the piece, right? Is talking about getting to college and not knowing that, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like if I screamed across the hall at my friend, I, f- I could feel the eyes, right? Whereas yes. that was normal in, in the house I grew up in. So it was such a cultural difference. Um, and that was the first cultural shock that like I needed to be quiet inside. Even yeah. the place that I was calling home, I had to be quiet. That's right. And I think um, I think that what I was trying to get at and what was remarkable to me, look, I want to just say this. I had a lot of readers of color. I had a lot of readers who were the children of immigrants from any number of ethnicities, like write to me and thank me for the piece. So I want to just say there was a lot of that. There was more of that. There was a lot more of like, I have not seen myself in this particular magazine and this was my experience. And that was awesome. 
But in the negative blowback, what shocked me and what made me uh, double down, frankly, on all of it was that I write about feeling isolated or not belonging and the sense of shame that comes when people shush you, like when your peers shush you, like how shaming that is. And there was zero empathy for that shaming. Hmm. And that's what I found so fascinating. There was so much attacking my me for attacking quiet. There was more of a desire to protect a sonic aesthetic than an empathy expressed for the idea that a young teenager had been shamed. And that, I think, is the greater ill that's going on in our culture right now. Wow. No, it's 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 really, really fascinating to me that, you know, the the backlash of something as simple about quiet. Right. It's it's it feels like something so simple, but like right now I live in rural Virginia and there, yeah. there are times like I have TVs on, I have noise machines on. It is unsettling. <laughs> it is so unsettling how quiet it is to me. Um, yeah. It's like, I'm not on vacation. Why do I need to be this quiet every day? Like I'm trying to be alive. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And I think really the the point really is just that it is not, we don't all come with the same thought about good and bad mm-hmm. and positive and negative. And it's equally important. We can no longer assume that what was the status quo is the status quo Mm -hmm. and that that's equally important. And to question that and to say, like, like you're you we have equal rights to have things the way that we like it. And and particularly and I didn't get as much into it, but like, you know, the propensity to like pick up the phone and involve like the police versus like, you know, like is like the the propensity to take things to authority is another kind of cultural difference. And it was just a really intriguing thing that I think is not even just, just racial or ethnic, but it's just sort of the difference between feeling othered and part of the system. You know, I, I, I was talking about the piece with a friend of mine, a queer friend of mine, and they were saying how they were like, they had somebody that broke into their apartment building, but they knew the woman from hanging outside of the bodega, like on the corner. And so they went to the bodeguero and they were like, what's her story before I call the cops? And they're like, actually her brother is a cop. And so he calls the brother. They call, my my friend calls the brother and is like, you need to come and deal with your sister. And I was like, that's community. That's actually building community. It's addressing a, a real problem, like a person breaking into your building and stay hanging out in the halls. But like, it's addressing it like humans that are neighbors that share community together. And I think that, um, that could have been the other takeaway that people could have taken from that. But I think um, it was somehow very triggering, which I thought was more, almost more fascinating. And to your point about something as benign as quiet, like you're like, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and just the idea, you know, it's, it's a separation of, I write a lot about personhood, but I think about, it's about othering and saying some people aren't people and their experiences aren't valid. Yes. Um, So if you are a human being, you should be quiet because we are quiet. And yes. we are human, but you person over there who's noisy, clearly you're not the same kind of human being or person that I am. It That's is- exactly right. It's attributes and, and it's attributes and valuation and belong and belonging and, and a sense of like, you belong, or you don't belong. And my, and what I found egregious about it is like, it's one thing, you know, and I think I, I make this point in the article. It's one thing when I go to a predominantly white institution campus and I feel like, oh, I don't belong, but I'll play along mm-hmm. to then have this uh, that populace decide to come and want to move to where I grew up and have me then have to conform to what they like on my own home ground. That's when it becomes 
I'm, I'm sort of like prickly about it. You know? <laughs> like, why can't you follow the rules of this place? It reminds exactly. me of the articles a few years ago, you know, about when white people moved into the neighborhood around Howard University. And we're yes. Like, walking yes. their dogs on the fraternity and sorority plots, not understanding. Yep. You know, we don't even walk on these and your dog That's, is pink. And you're taking your dog. That's right. No, and it's like the 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 not familiarizing yourself or the lack of understanding that there is local custom, that there is sort of like that these, this is local culture and not deciding to familiarize yourself with that is, is more a part of the problem than noisiness. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Now, the other thing that I found interesting about your piece and the the reason I want to have you on the show is without you naming your heritage at all in the piece, I don't think you said I am Puerto Rican. You said you're from Brooklyn. I don't think you said, or you may have, I don't even know if you said your identity exactly. But I could intuit your identity from reading the piece. I had like, I was like, this is either a Black person or a Latinx person. They're from an urban area. Um, I also was like, this is a person who grew up like me, right? I could see that in it without you ever naming it. And then I kind of look up who you are and first of all, realize you're friends with one of my best friends, (laughs) (laughs) which of course, and also like, like I could peg it dead on. Um, and so do you feel like it's possible for someone to have like interviewed you and gotten the same thing or to have observed the culture of Brooklyn and mm. been able to write the same piece? Or is it necessary for people like us to be writing our experiences in the mainstream? You know, that's such a great question. I I, I want to say, I think it's necessary for us to be doing it. It's not to say that it couldn't have come out, but like, again, I, there was an argument that I had with one of my editors on this piece, actually, that I thought was really um, interesting. And I, I'll either get in trouble or I don't care. I think the answer is I don't care. But like the, 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 there is when you are on the outside of an experience, what you judge as being the salient points is often out of sync with the values of the people that had the experience. So, for instance, um, you know, I mean, I am writing it a pretty like at a predominantly white publication and I had two editors who were white on the project and I did not want to name my school that I went to. I felt by saying an Ivy league school was enough because it conjures a, a an image that was general enough. And my point was that I didn't want to put a brand on it that then for people distracts them by thinking, well, this school is about this thing or like, or this is like that, or this person must be this type of person because I was writing this for the non-white slash lower income reader of the Atlantic, which exists, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I wanted them to see themselves in their experience, whatever, whatever predominantly white school they went to or that they chose not to go to, right? Like, it's like, like, this is what I didn't go to. And there was so much pushback for me to name my institution. And I, what people don't realize is like, when you are the othered voice, you don't casually make a decision. Like, you know, there is a strategy around the reason why you choose to include or not include the things that you do. And in this particular case, I was talking to what I would consider my community and writing in an all white publication, but to my community and the way that we fought about that detail. But I was like, that is just such, frankly, a PWI thing to want to do. Like you want to flex. And because you are so curious about the, 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 the sort of like 
value of another institution, like these, the status of these institutions is something that's of curiosity to you. There, therefore, it feels like it's something is lacking in the piece by not addressing it. But it, it's again another thing where I think. I think you would have known things about me, but I think they would have been very explicitly laid out in the beginning, like as though that was the only route to having my worldview, if that makes sense. And so I think that's the difference. Whereas I think I understand that there's a little bit more of a subtlety to it, you know, and it's like, because even as I was writing it, I think you finally know my identity by the end, because I'm in the Puerto Rican Day Parade, the close of the piece. But like, the truth is, when I thought about it, I was like, why did we, if I had to break it down, why was the summer noisier? And it was like, and I was literally in my much nicer house that I live in now. And I was like, oh, I was like, like because I, I was like, I have freaking ACs like in my wall. Like I have like basically a central AC. Like I was like, like I don't, I was like, I used to have to have the windows open. We didn't have AC. We had a box fit, you know? And mm-hmm. I was like, so the first thing was kind of class. And then, well, what were you hearing? And then what were these things? And then that's, so there's like a lot of, there's a a larger tent that folds into that. Like that I think on the one hand was very specific to my experience, but I know is common for many communities, right? Like, and um, many types of upbringings that are all that said situated outside of kind of the, the sort of elite higher ed PWI, like, um, trajectory to some to sitting in the same space that I might be sitting in and writing from. You know, it's interesting that you emphasize the PWI issue because I had friends read your article and say, this is why I went to an HBCU. Oh, if that, yeah. if that was your experience, yeah. If, yeah. If, if like you were shushed in your dorm or if you were shushed in the library, this is why I went, this is this right here is why I went to an HBCU. Um, and, and it's not something I'd ever thought of before. I think you get you know, some parts of being othered at a at a PWI is like the death of a thousand cuts, where I kind of forgot about being shushed because, you know, someone had hung a noose, right? It's like, right, right, right. right, right. Yes. I forgot about the little everyday kind of microaggressions that happen, yeah. Um, yeah. but they matter and they're significant. And it goes to your sense of belonging and whether or not you feel like it's okay to be in the place. That's right. It's so funny. I mean, and I know we're going to talk about Olga, the novel, but I used to call when people would be like, what's your book about? And I was like, it's my little book of microaggressions. Like, (laughs) I I, it was like, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to put in something that actually happened in real life, like at a different time. But I do think, um, yeah, I think that it's what I, in hindsight, you know, and I spend a lot of time working on things about higher ed and thinking about things in higher ed. Um, I think especially in the era that, you know, probably you and I were in school, like this was like, there was not any understanding of the fact that like, oh, there's a culture here. Mm -hmm. Like, and that now we are bringing in people that are not of that culture. Like, and I think there's, you know, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to think about, um, white Americanness is not having a culture. I think there's several variations on it, you know, but like that root, that kind of founding father colonial culture is a real thing like that exists at a lot of these like very elite East Coast schools, you know, like, and I think um, it sets the tone of like, what is, what is elegant? What is like sophisticated? What is like intellectual? Like, and and I think um, that the, like, what is, what's, what's the aesthetic of, What's the aesthetic of a of a rudeness? You know, like it's like, and if you think about it, I'm always I the quiet thing's fascinating because 
luxury cars, quiet motors, refrigerators, a quiet hum. Like, uh, you know, like it's like quiet has such the quiet car, like, and it comes with the power to police things and the power to brag. And it's just a really fascinating thing that I think if that was not something that you valued, you did not realize you were going to need to sub sublimate about yourself. And that's actually a very hard thing to sublimate. And that, you know, the results often, particularly I'd say in the nineties and the, in the aughts, I think schools have gotten better about thinking about these things is that the student body ends up self-segregating to um, find comfort and safety, right. And to avoid those feelings of shame and to just be your full self. And like, and it's just outside of where the mainstream campus is happening. Yep. Like we all lived on central campus. Yep. <laughs> right. We all lived in central campus apartments. One, it was cheaper than a dorm. Yep. It stay all year round. Yeah. Um, and we could be as noisy as we wanted to be. Like it was understood yep. that like, but people would call it the ghetto. They're like, oh yep. yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. 1,000. I mean, and I think that was a story from campus to campus, right? Like, and I think what, when that, when you get that feeling and then you move, let's say back to DC or you move back to Brooklyn, or you move back to Philadelphia, or like wherever you might be from. And suddenly, the people that you had met and encountered at the school, suddenly are policing the same aesthetic on your hometown that was not that way. Like, it's a very sensitive thing. There's a real feeling of, um, of not just loss, but an idea that like, I came back to home, and now I'm being asked to conform in a space, but why? Because you decided to move here. So, you know, it's, it's a tricky, tricky thing. I mean, and I guess like, so clearly I have a lot of feelings because a lot of those themes are, are themes in the book. They are, they are. <laughs> and I, you know, I found, you know, you know, that's why I wanted to start with this and, and root, you know, weave it into the book. And one thing I didn't uh, put in our Q and A, but I, I would, I want to talk about briefly is the history of, of Puerto Rico, um, yeah. which is pivotal in the book. Um, I was telling her before we started, I knew nothing about the history of Puerto Rico. Um, I thought Puerto Rico was more like any other colony, right? Like something that like the U.S. won in a war against like France or Spain or Mexico or like some other big thing. And somehow they just got included in it when actually it's more like the history of Haiti. Yeah. Right. It's more Mm -hmm. like Haiti. And I wonder, you know, do you think this disparate history, the fact that it's more like Haiti than it is like Texas, right? Yeah. Like we kind of forget that Texas was Mexico and I'm from Houston. And yeah. I'm often like, I can feel that this used to be Mexico. Yeah. Um, but is it, do you think that disparate history is why Puerto Rico gets this different treatment? I think it absolutely is. But I also think it's because, <laughs> how do well, first of all, we do ourselves a disservice in America by not studying Caribbean history along with American history, because it's just as part of our history of slavery. It's just as much a part of like, it's a pivotal, in, financially we are interlocked. There's been so much American intervention, mm-hmm. like in almost all of these places at varying places, pieces in time, American puppet string pulling like like i mean what we just came out this summer about the role of citibank in haiti was just outrageous and reminded me to your point so much of what happened in board that go but i think the real reason is because we are still actively exploiting puerto rico and opening it up to puerto rico, to exploitation and not just 
by way of disaster capitalism and crypto miners scooping up land and privatizing beaches, like actively our government, you know, like we still impose the Jones Act, like which forces people to pay a premium on produce just to get basic fruits and vegetables in their lives. Like we like we force this through, like not having changed the there's taxation without representation to Puerto Ricans unless you actually move there and then you don't pay tax. Like, you know, like, like, yeah. like, like, so it's um we are still actively exploiting the island. And I think the reason why it doesn't get the same attention is because it might actually upset people and outrage people. And part of why I wanted to write about it was I felt at its very basis, I think like when I was kind of coming to this and I knew that this was going to be the larger backdrop of what the book was about, um, I very much in the air was, um, you know, voting rights restoration for, um, you know, restoring uh, convicts voting rights as as they should be. And I I started to think about the fact that like if we care about this as an issue, which we all should, right? Because it's like a basic right of citizenship, then we should all also care that that's a right that's stripped of people because the absurdity of it is outrageous that like you could then move to Florida and get recruited as a Republican and vote for Ron DeSantis. And like, you know, like it's like because you and you move to Florida because some crypto miner wants to privatize a beachfront and now suddenly 17 apartment buildings get knocked down. Like and there's no schools and there's no power in the school and the teachers are got their pensions cut. It's like, I guess I have to move to Florida. And now suddenly you have a vote. But like, and your kid will be born with full d- democratic United States like rights of citizenship. So the absurdity of it just seemed to me too Kafka esque to leave on the table, and it just seemed like something that should be on the table. Of these are obvious like um, diminishments of our rights as U.S. citizens that we should all be concerned about, and um, and I think, you know, and D.C. has a similar situation with voting. But again, I also think we should be concerned about it there. It's just that there are active economic penalties that the people of Puerto Rico have, have been like subjected to since 1898. Mm-hmm. And like, right. Like and and the book, the book didn't even touch on on so many things, which is like the you know, rights were first when uh, the right of citizenship was first bestowed on Puerto Ricans. It was literally under a paper bag test. And like, it was like, because they didn't want more black citizens. They just needed soldiers for the army for World War One. And so like, it was really like, you know, and so I think um, it took me a while to figure out how to find the stories, the character stories in order to be able to tell the history. And I always say, I actually wrote this book for, I wrote this book for diasporicans, to be honest. Like when I think about who I wrote it for, it was really important to me to tell the story of the island and Maria. But like I, I understood that that experience is different from my experience growing up in New York or any somebody's experience growing up in Chicago or or or, or you know Massachusetts or whatever. I think to me, I I someone I was like I didn't explain, for instance, like I made it a point to not explain like what Coquito is, but I put the history in there. And, you know, activists have a tendency to over teach you history all the time anyway, but because we are so we 
Puerto Ricans in the mainland are stripped of our own history. We aren't taught this either. We are in the same curriculum that you are having. Like, and unless unless your parents are like my parents and sending you history books, like forgotten history books, like it's like you were not getting this. And and the idea that it's like I think what I felt was the most important work. It was like was a restorative. And I think about this with a lot of my fiction and a lot of my writing in general, but especially fiction. It's like restorative narrative work mm-hmm. because there were activists. The young lords were trying to say, like, no, we're not going to let this economic sub- like subjugation that we're experiencing in urban centers alongside, like, like as we're coming to these communities, do, have you then allow us to be defined as broke and lazy and this and that? We're going to expose what you're actually doing to us and putting us in buildings with lead paint and defunding our hospitals and like, you know, like, and, and like, and, 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 and not cleaning up our garbage in the neighborhoods where we live and like, and say like, you, there is actually a lineage of the, the title of the poem comes from one of the New Yorkian poets, like uh, Pedro Preti, a Puerto Rican obituary. And I, it's to say like this, if you like this book, this is a book in a lineage of like, the diaspora creating art about our experience of the diaspora saying, no, this isn't enough. Like this isn't good of the Island saying, no, this isn't good through art and like, and through its people. So I think the history was also just important to remind us all that we have to reject the narrative that mainstream America has created about, about Puerto Rico and about Puerto Ricans in the diaspora as well. You know, I, you know, before I read the book, I also was just assuming that Puerto Rico was like D.C. as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and and what they do have in common is a majority population of color mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, although, you know, D.C. history is interesting in that parts of Virginia used to be D.C. and then they wanted yeah. to keep their slaves. So they, yeah. they decided to leave the district. Right. Right. Um, um, which I guess could be similar. But like, you know, just drawing those parallels, you know, I I've thought about how you know, just even the law of Puerto Rico and what has happened and, you know, why Hawaii gets to be a state and Puerto Rico doesn't. Oh, I mean, something that we need to ex- explore in legal academia, but just in academia in general. I, I mean, I think about just the simple fact that like there was a giant period of time where it was against the law to sing the original Puerto Rican national anthem. It was you could go to jail for singing the song. You could go to jail for flying the Puerto Rican flag until 1928, if I'm not mistaken, wow. about the year. Yeah. Lay 53. And literally like it, they would put and there's a tradition, there's musical tradition like, um, oh, there's a few musical traditions, but um, Bomba y Plena are two musical traditions of Puerto Rico that came with the Yoruba people when um, Puerto Rico was a stop in the slave trade. And um, people, the Spanish brought them to uh, the slaves to mine along with the Tainos, the sugar fields. And Bomba, Bomba emerged as like a way to organize rebellion through music. Mm-hmm. And Lena became the way once the Americans kind of took over from the Spanish, like behind the Puerto Ricans back, like they thought that they were going to become their own nation as brokered with the Spanish. And then suddenly they were taken up as a spoil of war by the United States without anybody realizing it and Lena became a way to explain what the new regime change was going to mean and so it's all to say that you could go to jail if your bomba y plena was considered pro puerto rico pro independence pro like these like traditions that had been part of the island for so long could land you in jail until like 1928 wow like, so it's a wild wild like uh, the 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 
the way in which order and rebellion was clamped down on the island has been, um, that in and of itself is a fascinating study. But I think the important part that I was trying to get at with the book is we've been, I think we've been told in the media that we are like victims. Mm-hmm. And actually, we've always been trying to rebel and find our agency. It's just that like there have been so like it's, you know, it's it gets t- squashed because of all of the, the complicated systems on top of it. But there's also always been a history of rebellion. It's far easier to assume that, you know, Puerto Ricans were lazy people who needed to be saved instead exactly. of they were seeking sovereignty and oppressed. And that's yeah. that's a far easier narrative for Americans to handle. Oh, much, very, very, very. And that the state of, you know, the diaspora today is a reflection of the fact that they were always too lazy and are just like eating off of America. It's all like, it's all narrative that is much easier to digest than the much more complicated truth. So I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, about identity. And in the book, she, stri- what I find interesting is, and I thought about as I was reading the book, I was like, wait a minute, I don't ever, when I'm describing my friends or I'm in conversation with friends about friends, I never say anyone's race. Mm-hmm. Right? When I am in a, right? And it doesn't matter the race of the people. I don't think that's something relevant mm-hmm. to describe mm-hmm. someone with. And what I noticed in the book, you know, it stood out to me the way Olga's mother describes her lighter skin, straighter hair, speaks in a way that doesn't upset white people. But she never says, this is my black father, which I was like, her father's black. And then I was like, like, I had moments when I was like, wait, is he dark or is he black? And is that yeah. a difference? Right. Yeah. And, and it made me wonder, um, is, is this a common thing in, in Puerto Rico where you don't describe someone in a black white dichotomy the way we do in America, or is it something unique to Olga? Um, no, I think that generally speaking in Latin Caribbean, like, you know, a Dominican family, um, you know, like I'd like in a, obviously like a Puerto Rican family, like you're going to find a level of potential racial diversity within a family that's quite expansive. Um, I wanted to leave it vague enough for people to decide in their own minds, like how that person might look like, you know, you could turn to the back flap and be like, she must look like her, or you can have it in your own head. Like, you know, I thought the other thing that I found fascinating um, was that, you know, how people pictured her shape, like how thick or thin they found Olga in their minds to be. But like, but I, you know, I, I had a really great conversation with um, a Caribbean writers podcast and the, the writer was like, thank you for writing about colorism just amongst Caribbean people. Cause mm-hmm. it's in general, because of the origins and the history of the Caribbean, you can find a family that just has a lot of racial diversity in the way that somebody turned out, right? <laughs> like, right. It's just like, like in the way that the deck got stacked. And so I wanted to though, at the same time, talk about that, but also talk about what are the paths that get paved easier for the person that looks like me versus like, Mabel, you know, minus Mabel's, like, what is the difference in Mabel's life being darker skinned woman and having parents as educated who you wonder, oh, are you also a darker skinned person in your family? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the difference of that versus Prieto, her brother, who is kind of raised by two college, you know, until things happen to college educated people is a little darker skin. He finds success in the public arena. 
Like, right. like what are the different roads? Because there's so much, it's also like a subtle, and I, I can't remember if it's actually in the book or I had to take it out for space, but like, it's a, it's a subtle damnation on public schools because there's so much, um, <laughs> and I, and when I've talked about this book with other New Yorkans or other New York kids like of color, like we've all been like, oh, like you're really pointing the finger at the teachers because there is so much implicit bias that used that particularly used to happen, like where it was like, oh, I'm going to call on you or you sit in the front mm-hmm. and you sit in the back and like and who gets to be in the front and who gets to be in the back. And like and then I think with Reggie King, who is like an important character to me in this um, in this way, it was like there was a, a, the idea of like, it was harder to be himself and at, in the eighties, let's say the nineties be Afro Latino. And it was something he had to like step into, like he actually found more ease just like simply like cleaning up his identity to to fit into right. the binary of most conversation, right? It's like, like I can make my way this way and I can make my way that way. And I don't know that I think of Olga as ever passing but i think it's like why was she the door welcome to her in a pwi like in a predominantly white space like what is it that and it's like in fact if anything i think i think there's a lot of conversation in the latin x community at large like the latino community at large about anti-blackness that i think is a it's a new more nuanced conversation in like the caribbean end of things if that makes sense because um there's like an old Puerto Rican poem and like the kind of callback line is, but what, tell me, where is your grandmother? And it's that everybody, like people could go out and pass as though they are like related to the Spanish and then they're hiding their black grandmother in a kitchen, you know, like, and that's like the gist of the poem. So it, on the one hand, it's more insidious. And on the other hand, it's been part of a conversation for a longer time. Um, and I, I think I wanted to make sure that that was part of what I was talking about here. And that um, what I think is, interesting about Olga is that in getting she doesn't necessarily because her mother makes it very clear and impossible for her to forget she never is in these other rooms and not aware that if she was a little bit darker or didn't have her hair straight or didn't do x y and z thing that maybe she wouldn't have been asked to be there Right. right like and her palatability is part of what allows her to be invited into the room and so it's the double edged sword of like on the one hand, loving the approval and on the other hand, like feeling a little sick, like, and that's why I think the, when she encounters these sort of microaggressions, it's like, it's doubly painful because it's like she hears her mother's voice and she sees it to, hears it to be true. (laughs) I think it's interesting that her Spanish isn't great, right? Or she'll say my Spanish isn't great, but Reggie's Spanish is perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And I I took that as a message, right? He feels compelled to prove I'm not just African-American. Yeah. I am Puerto Rican. Yeah. Whereas she feels like, you know, it's like, I don't need to. I'm obviously Puerto Rican when I want to be. Right. Well, and I think like, I think it was an interesting thing too, of like for her brother, the knowing Spanish becomes an asset. Like he goes to SUNY, he joins like a Latino frat, like shout out to my Latino Greeks. Like I got so many messages from Latino Greeks. They're like, thank you. (laughs) You People forget they exist. Some of my best friends are Latino. Some people don't know that they exist, like, which is so interesting. But like, and she kind of goes to a space where if anything, why would I even 
I, it doesn't occur. Like, why would I learn this now? Like, why would I fix this now? Like, you know, like, it's like, like my broken Spanish is useless to me in this environment. And, and I think, I don't know, like, I, I, I hesitate to use the word of violence, but like, it's sort of like, um, there, like she makes, she's put in position after position where she's like, how much can I embrace what is a part of my culture in order to succeed in the space where I find myself. Right. Like, and that, um, and I think I just wanted to show that in a, in sort of a, a, and what is the, the, the black white binary is a fascinating thing because it's all like rooted in frankly, um, guilt and refusal to absolve what, like a refusal to take ownership of the history of slavery in the States. Right. Right? And so it's really the black white binary exists because of, white people <laughs> like really like and yeah. so I think I wanted to leaves other communities like in terms of navigating that and like particularly the Caribbean Latino community and particularly the Puerto Rican community right like and I I, I that was like um that was like an intriguing thing and also I just thought it was like I, I I've been really moved I think it's been so awesome this embrace, like it's been fascinating for me to see friends that I grew up with as like the ident- Afro Latino identity has become like really like more pronounced and asserted. And I, I wanted to talk about that like as a thing, which is like, you know, like I, you know, and I made all these characters middle age because I think it's interesting. It's one thing, it's great that people can grow up with all of this knowledge and like that's how things have always been. But mm-hmm. it's like the reality is there's a lot of people that are like, we, what I, I guess people are saying I could be this or it could be that but like how do I navigate that like I my values were rooted in this other thing well I think it's important that they're middle-aged in that when I think about my own family growing up in Texas it doesn't matter if someone's biracial they're black right so you know it's like oh yeah that cousin it doesn't matter like you're in this family you're obviously a black person and it makes me think about like um Juliana Joaquin Castro and how when people found out they didn't grow up speaking Spanish oh I know and I had to explain to people why in Texas you could not grow up speaking Spanish most of my friends my age their parents intentionally did not have them speaking Spanish at home well, it's, it was always a, for assimilation and race, like their own experiences of racism. And I, I, I wrote a piece about this a few weeks ago, uh, and it was called Selena didn't speak Spanish either. But it was right. like it was. Um, but the point about it was that we and that's part of why I had Olga not speak Spanish was it was important to me to show that these are all valid expressions of 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 an identity and that that. Also, only Latino people, they're the only group, Italian Americans, Greek Americans, every other immigrant group that's ever come to this country is praised for forgetting their language. Only Latinos live in this double bind where somehow you're like punished and not seen as enough if you didn't speak Spanish without realizing that still like generations and generations, generations later, you're still being told to like. Like, you know, it's, it's really this crazy thing. Like, it's a crazy thing. Like everybody else is like, oh, well, of course, why would I expect you Italian Rudy Giuliani to speak Italian? Like like, what (laughs) what generation in, why would I expect you? But then it's like, you don't speak Spanish. Like as though you're receiving some sort of social benefit by saying that you're Latino, but, and then you're like, you're a fraud by not like, (laughs) well, and then it's the double bind of 
you don't speak Spanish, but if you speak English with a Spanish accent, I'm going to discriminate against I'm you. I'm going to discriminate against you. That's right. No, completely. It's really, it's, it's just like a fascinating thing to me. And so um, I wanted to make sure that I also looked at that and language loss and that language loss is usually also part of a system, you know, and I, I, I I'm really, like I said, like I, because I always thought of myself as writing it for the diaspora, it was like, is everybody seeing everybody that they know in here? And like, and that feels like, a, you know, it's about a lot of things, but I primarily it was like, I wanted to, with the most beautiful language I could, could muster while still having them talk like people that I knew, paint a portrait of this family and this experience. You know, what I loved most about it is that I can take your book and map it onto my family in a way that I could not take a book by a white person and map it. I can literally go through your book and be like, that's aunt so-and-so. I won't say their names because they will come. But, you know, like that's aunt so-and-so, that's cousin this. Oh, that's exactly, that's how this parent was. That's how, like, I could map, like literally map it on. Um, And it kind of showed me that cultures that are oppressed are the same. Cultures that are othered are the same. Yes. And there's some shared experience there. Like it doesn't need to be a black author for yeah. me to find commonality. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I No, And I, you know, and I love hearing you say that. And particularly because I think growing up um, there was such a dearth in Latino authors that in looking for anybody to relate to, like I turned again and again to the few black authors that there were like I turned yeah. to Toni Morrison I, I I remember actually I remember reading even like Amy Tan and devouring all of like Amy Tan's books in the 90s because I was like I just was looking for culture and family that engaged and like some you know like and I think um so it's sort of beautiful to hear you say that just because I needed that because like there was just really there were a little spurt in the nineties when I got into college, like that. And then it was like publishing just sort of closed the doors up. Right. And now we're in an amazing time. I mean, amazing. It can always be better, but like I, there has been a conscious effort to like, say like, okay, we need books that actually reflect us. And that is, um, and so there, you know, it's, it's great to see now it's great to just see the, the variety and diversity within the black stories that are being published within the Latino stories, I mean, the Asian stories that are being published, like that, that's even getting delicious now, like to just yeah. the, that. But I do think you're right. There's a, a commonality that is, um, I, I, I guess it's the purpose of literature, right? Is to find that we have, we have touch points with people that we didn't necessarily think we would have and to discover ourselves and other people's experiences. Yes. The food and the eating also, I was like, see, this feels <laughs> right. Like every time the family is together around food, yes. know, firing yeah. up the grill, like making the wedding favors, like that was so familiar to me. Cause that's literally like, you know, a wedding is not a solo event that you no. put on a wedding is a community event. And, you know, it was that dichotomy between white culture where, you know, you spend all the money and you put on the show. Oh, I mean, when I, I know it from personal experience, it was a very different, like, it was like paying no attention to that woman behind the curtain. <laughs> right. Whereas it's like, no, we're making wedding favors. We're spray painting bottles. We're like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Who's cooking, you know, someone might yeah. actually bake the cake in the family. Like when my aunt and uncle got married, my grandmother sewed the entire thing. Oh my goodness. She was the seamstress, including the tuxedos for the men. She sewed the entire wedding. Oh my God. Yeah. 
Wow. But that's, but that was the norm, right? It was that either someone's grandmother or someone in the community was was contributing to the wedding. It was a communal event, not a show. Yeah. Uh, And and that cultural similarity too stuck out to me. Yeah. 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 No, that's like, I, I, that's so, I love that you said that because it was something that again, like I didn't want to, I had worked as a wedding planner for many years. I didn't really want to make her a wedding planner. And then at the same time, it just seemed like such a great way to talk about class. And also upon self-reflection, I was intrigued in this about my own self. And I was like, I think this would be an interesting thing to explore with this character about like choosing an occupation where you find yourself subservient to your peers, like, you know, in service of your peers. And how did she get here? You know, like I was like, like, and so, um, but I, I did always find it fascinating. What was the point of the wedding? Like when, when my family would have them or my business partner was also Latina when her family would have them versus what we were doing for our clients, you know, and like, and they really had completely different purposes. And um, a lot of the time they had completely different purposes. And so I wanted to sort of show that um, in some way and, and Mabel getting, letting Mabel get married seemed like the right way. <laughs> yeah. and she's also just like one of my favorite characters. So, well, and I think, you know, one thing I learned when I went to college was the idea that you RSVP to a wedding. Like, okay. <laughs> right. Cause in my family, if there's a wedding, it's just like the Chapman's. Yes. <laughs> maybe four people show up, maybe 10 people show up. Like, I don't know. Right. Like, but I have 21st cousins. So it's very much like, yep. obviously you were planning for a, a, you know, basically a fancy cookout. And yep. like, I did that you would RSVP exactly. Yeah. The first time I got a wedding invitation that had like a number space, it was like, how do I know? Oh how my God. That's so funny. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to know? Like you sent it to the house and everybody like, is it all four of us? Is it like, do I take the girl? Who, who knows? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, you just, and I think, you know, Nigerian weddings are kind of the same way. It's just like, Oh, we could have a few hundred people. Who knows? Who knows? Yep. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now the last, what I want to close with is, is talking about place. Right. And, and where yeah. Oga feels like she has is her true self. So, yeah. uh, you know, she is, she's never been or she, she, I don't think she's ever been to Puerto Rico, right? Is that? She went once with Reggie. Right. And she's, that was yeah. like, yeah. So she was like in her twenties when she finally went. And, yeah. and it's like, and, and she just, she remembers the difference in how like, well, first she could see immediately that they were not the same. Like, you know, you right. never feel more American than when you like sort of like go to a place that you're of like, and and, you know, and then Reggie was speaking Spanish, like, you no, know, you know, but to that point about discrimination, nobody was expecting Reggie to speak Spanish, even in Puerto Rico, like, you know, like, so yeah. like, these things are real things, like, you know, but then they were like disappointed when she didn't. And so it kind of made her like, other than the music, it made her feel like I'm not up here either. But right. and so like, Brooklyn, and the sort of idea of like, what Brooklyn meant, which is like, you know, community, like, home like being there for each other like this idea of like having somebody's back all right final front you the money for this thing like like sort of accepting ironically in the poem like um he talks about like accepting you you know you home is where people accept you for who you are you know and like and i think that that for her was what brooklyn felt like and she's in sort of an existential crisis about a lot of things when we meet her because the place is changing 
like she's feeling she's gotten to a tipping point about her job where it no longer the money, the thrills have gone. Like, you know, the money's wearing off like this, that. And then she meets another guy from Brooklyn who had also been a non-white person at a predominantly white institution who also is from, you know, grew up there, like got all these things. And it's almost like she relaxes because she's not speaking short. She can speak shorthand. She doesn't have to do the affectation that she does for clients. She like can kind of talk the way she would to her family or to like an old friend. And he comes with very fresh eyes on her life. Like, I think because of the, the comfort, like, and it just sort of, he ends up being kind of the pebble in her shoe that yeah. forces her to look at things a little bit askance. Like, and it's just this shared idea that he values the things that she values. And those are the values of like old Brooklyn that she sees going away as the, you know, people that are getting displaced and they're being replaced by people that don't care about these things, you know, like, and, um, and I think that that is like a real thing. And it's definitely uh, people always like, I wrote this book rather quickly for a novel of its length. And it was really because I felt like, I felt like it was disappearing before my eyes. If that makes sense. And I was like, I need to say what it was in this moment and like i i'm working on um i'm trying to work on a documentary about my old neighborhood where olga lives like i used to live in fort green i live in clinton hills so i moved like 10 10 or so blocks away but um i lived there for like 16 years or so and when i moved there what the draw was i started this business and i was like everybody i met was like a person of color or French, weirdly. I have no idea why so many <laughs> French immigrants moved to move there, but everybody was kind of an artist and doing these very artsy things. And like, there were all these little nightclubs stashed here and there and like places to go after hours. And it was like, oh, we were just having the time of our lives. It was like, like, it was like, like Paris and Brooklyn, really, frankly. Wow. And it was amazing. And I saw, you know, little by little, each place closed and was replaced with a white owned business. And Blah, blah, blah. And I saw an article in um, New York Magazine, and it was literally about how, when did everybody start eating on DeKalb Avenue? And I was like, everybody's always been eating on DeKalb Avenue. When, <laughs> the question is, when did white people start eating on DeKalb Avenue? And right. that was when like Black and Latino nightlife died on DeKalb Avenue. And so I'm working on an oral history of nightlife in Fort Greene. Like, and it, well, it was, it's really going to end up being a documentary, like a visual documentary. It started as an oral history project. And then I was like, I need the visuals. Like, you need the visuals. So, um, but it's just because that idea of slippage is right. a real thing. And um, and so I think I'm happy that in the book she finds Mateo because it gives her something to hang on to. But that right. is the the she feels most at home and i think she's very comfortable with being a new yorkian like i think she's very aware of like okay this is our culture like we came to this place a very long time ago like we're, we're so ingrained in this culture and we are but then we're also disappearing so it's like it's a it's a tricky tricky um tricky thing but i definitely feel like brooklyn is olga's space and um and i i, I can say personally from when I wrote that, which was in 2019, I started in 2019 to now, and that's not that long ago, it's already so different. And I wow. feel more, I hunt now for the places where I feel like it's still my space. So, well, what I thought, what I felt about her meeting Mateo is, you know, I thought about the concept of home being a person, not a place. 
Yeah. And I think that that's right. I think that that's what she ends up like finding. And she needs to because the place is going to keep changing. Right. right. Like, yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah. you've got to have, you know, Mateo like reminds is the trigger, but it reminds her that's that right. family relationships. Yes. Um, that's what her home. It is. opens her eyes to like the idea that like, I think the, the challenge with her is that she, when we meet her, she's actually very loved and just can't feel it. Yes. And that's the, that's the shift. That's the shift. All right. So we are out of time. And what I would like to close with is you telling us what is next. What is next for Olga? What is next for you? Um, I am doing my final edits on my next book, which weaves some of the college stuff. It's a, it's a woven tale between a Latino art history student at a predominantly white college in the 90s with the um, fictional telling of Anna Mendieta's death and afterlife as she haunts Carl Andres um, in order to restore her place in the art world. Um, and they end up coming together in a very interesting way. And I'm really, really excited about it. Um, it's based on the life and death of Anna Mendieta, but I fictionalized her uh, for the sake of like, respect. <laughs> and I'm really, really excited about it. I'm really excited about that. Probably won't come out until um, early 2024, maybe late 2023. But but um, but I'm I'm doing my edits now and I'm very excited. And I'm hopefully working on some TV and film stuff. I'm not sure what's going on with the Olga show. We'll have to see. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is challenging, but I'm out there. I'm out yeah. there. Well, and Olga, I mean, I it was was it supposed to be on Hulu eventually? It was supposed or? to be on Hulu. I I don't I I I'm trying to find a way to limited series, which I think is the best. And I think that a lot of the cast is still interested in being involved, even though the original plan didn't work. But I definitely think limited would also work best that way for um for all of us, for everybody. So I'm hoping that we can find a home. It's I mean, it's been I I cannot get over the reception of this book, the the sales, all of it. So I know that there's an audience out there. Um, and I was so proud of what we did. Like it's beautiful. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm hoping that we can repackage it as a limited and find it at home. Yes. I, I can't wait to see it on the screen because I would love to see how it visually plays to what I've I've created in my head for the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. If you ever miss an episode, you can hear the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are streamed. And you can find me on social media. I am at Carla C. Thank you for listening. And thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.